0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin and a guest who ultimately to this audience, we know, needs no introduction, but he's going to introduce himself anyway. It's a big week. First episode being recorded in February 2023. Dimitri, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Conrad, and I'm excited to have our guest over here. It's been a, it's been a pretty hectic fortnight, I'd say. Lots of news to speak about, but of course, news aside, I think we just have some questions and uh, just want to discuss, uh, you know, the current year or maybe the the past two years with our great guest here, so I'll let you introduce him, Conrad.
0: We are of course joined tonight by the esteemable Jay Dyer, author, live streamer, apologist, geopolitics and movies commentator he does it all we've of course been following his work for a long time he shares our stuff and we really appreciate it jay how are you this evening i'm doing great guys thanks for having me well it's really great to have you here and you know we could uh we could talk about all sorts of different things on this episode here but we want to uh hop right into some current events some current uh Things going on and how they relate to the history of, of psyops, intelligence, all that sort of thing. So I guess the first question we want to talk about, let's get into some things with Jordan Peterson, actually. I think that'd be a good place to go. Recently, Jordan Peterson, he's been working with The Daily Wire. He's got some good content, some interesting stuff coming out, some other things that aren't as interesting. He recently talked about uh, Iran and the need to, I guess, kind of seed ideas in the American public about a possible war with Iran. This, of course, comes as the war rhetoric in Ukraine is almost kind of, I would say in the public eye, there's kind of a Ukraine fatigue. And then we're also seeing the whole China thing going on. Jay, what do you think is the current state of, of I guess, war-based psychological operation in the U.S. and the future that, I guess, the Atlantic Empire has for, for the wars around the world that we're experiencing today?
2: Well, I think everybody knows about the older alignments, uh, you know, coming out of the Cold War that are, I guess, still there, still very relevant and so my guess would just be that the hot spots relate to those old cold war uh hot spots such as the you know the relationship with china the relationship with russia the relationship the relationship with iran all of which would be conceived in varying degrees as anti-western but of course in my view uh especially when it comes to places like china or perhaps even the fifth column within russia Uh, you know, there, there are aspects that would like to see these powers also integrated into some sort of future synthesis or future, you know, mega state. So I don't know exactly what the outlines are for future conflicts per se, but I know that, you know, the, all of the the conflicts that we're seeing just seem to be new instantiations of the Cold War.
1: What's, yeah, what's interesting is, uh, so Iran's been in the crosshairs for, I think, decades now since the Cold War, as you mentioned, but I think the, uh, the key thing I think that, what well, I'm noticing at least is, at least domestically in the US, there was this fatigue of, oh, let's not fight overseas in the Middle East anymore, especially after, you know, Trump and Biden pulled out of Afghanistan. And of course, Iraq has left a really bad taste in the mouth of, you know, veterans and patriots alike. And to have somebody like Jordan Peterson kind of slightly hint at the fact that Iran should be invaded because it's a misogynistic uh, nation and kind of using that talking point on his, on his personal podcast, I think. Has really thrown a lot of uh, a lot of controversy on Twitter. I'm I'm not sure how to view it. I mean, I don't personally view it in a in a positive light, and I'm not sure if Jordan's really controlled. Maybe this is his actual personal opinion. Um, what do you think about that?
2: I don't know. I mean, my immediate suspicion would be that you know if he's working for the Daily Wire, then he's going to default side with uh, the Israeli policy in the Middle East, and I feel sure that the situation with why your Iran is an issue ultimately relates to that, right? It it relates to the seven-nation plan. It relates to the the micro-nation Oded Yanan plan of creating the micro-states in the Middle East for the greater Israel. Uh, So that would be my guess as to why he takes that view. Uh, I don't know how adept he is at geopolitics. Uh, I guess he met with Netanyahu, but... I don't know that he really knows anything about the Cold War beyond what we he kind of talks about in some of the talks relating to Soviet gulags and Solzhenitsyn and this kind of stuff. But yeah, beyond that, I, I don't know what his motivations would be, other than what is probably the case with just where he works and and maybe he's sort of, you know, he seems to sort of have this uh, neocon sort of default mode within him, and I think everybody boomer does because he typically just sort of goes back to classical liberalism and classical liberal talking points now he does say a lot of true things so i'm not trying to be overly critical because i think he's insightful but then uh, at at other times the solutions that we get it's just sort of like oh we just need more classical liberalism it's like really i mean there's nothing else that we have to offer beyond just more of the same
0: for the last several centuries i mean (laughs) you know what i mean Well, I think the most charitable thing I'll give to Jordan is he, you know, he have used – he's an older guy. He views the past as – it wasn't as crazy and woke as everything now, but he is just kind of unwilling to let go of whether it's something like Jung when it comes to his biblical interpretation or something like classical liberalism when it comes to his politics. He seems really stuck in what propelled him in academia to the forefront without realizing that, no, you exceeded there before you started challenging the ideas that would kind of – fix the problem where we are right now, I think. Uh, and a lot of yeah, people that follow that... him back to Christianity need to come to some of those conclusions as well.
2: It's just sort of the same old Cold War dialectics. That's why I keep kind of going back to that stuff because I don't mean to beat a dead horse. It's just like people in his generation, they don't <clears throat> they don't seem able to think beyond that era's propaganda of dialectics. And I think that what I always try to push, and it's not because I you know, have some favoritism to some other country or something like that. It's just because I've read enough on this topic that I think that it really is the case that the Cold War is largely manipulated dialectic. And I think that people who run things intentionally want to create a synthesis out of that, which is a larger global world economic Great Reset, you know, Fabian Socialist global project. And so that's why it's not, in my view, it's not helpful falling back into those boomer neocon era dialectics and so i think we need to get past that so while i agree with again i think in the, in terms of the gender stuff in terms of the you know insights and critiquing things uh, this, this the Jungian psychoanalysis there's a lot of insights in jordan peterson but on the geopolitical model uh and i agree i, I agree with him that communism is not good sure but you know, that doesn't mean that, okay, then I'm going to just default to neoconservative neoliberalism as if that's good.
0: Exactly. And in many ways, these narratives, Cold War, World War II, those are still, especially to boomers and even some Gen Xers, the defining narrative right. that we still have to contend with if you want to even get to truth or basic understanding of what's going on in the world. But that, those narratives couldn't come without what happened in World War I and even what happened in the wars of the 19th century before that. So I want to get your perspective. We've heard a lot. You talk about this very true idea, with well, not idea, just the fact that World War One was ultimately planned by the British, the Atlantic Empire, to destroy Austro-Hungary and the Russian Empire, as right. as the two kind of main enemies of the British merchant seafaring Empire. And I'm wondering also your perspective on the German Empire at the time, because we know Spengler's and others have talked about the danger that would come if the two land empires, whether it was Germany and Russia, or also Austro-Hungary, being a more land empire, then forming against you know that that sea empire and how the german empire plays into that narrative as well as well as iran as we were just talking about iran as i would say kind of that heartland empire of the middle east that has always been targeted by what i would say israel in this case is the british like they would represent the british in this scenario so i think this pattern really repeats itself around the around the empire zones you could call them of the world i wonder what your thoughts are on that
2: yeah well and israel began when it was you know established that it was an outpost of the british empire that was its original function now of course the B- british empire doesn't really exist anymore but what does exist is the anglo-american atlanticist empire that quigley talks about and uh, you know quigley, quigley is just so key here to understand in my view this whole 20th century shakeup. because as you said the two world wars uh according to quigley were for the purpose of the atlanticist power block exhausting and depleting Their two main rivals, and as you intimated, they're keeping those two out of a union. So anything that fosters the division between Austro-Hungarian Empire and Russia was necessary for the Atlantis's strategy, and it was also necessary in their view to not just do the two Cold War, the the two World Wars, but also the Cold War. So when Quigley was writing Tragedy and Hope, he was writing, you know, kind of in the midst of the Cold War in the 1960s, reflecting from the CFR archives on the the two previous World Wars. And he admits that, you know, this was a key strategy to keep Germany and Russia from having any alliance. And I think that Bolshevism uh, really played a key role in that because not only was Bolshevism exported to uh, Russia, as everyone knows, from the West, from the from the elites, from the American Industrial Corporation, Morgan Rockefeller, you know, banking interests, all putting money into the Bolshevik Revolution. There was also a brief German uh, Bolshevik Revolution that occurred so that the intention was to have Bolshevism in Germany, too. That only lasted what a few months. I think that there was like a few months of a Bolshevik government in, uh, in Germany around that time before it uh, turned into something else. Uh, and then later would become obviously the fascists, but point being is that, yeah, that, that's what was behind this. And when you get, you know, deeper into these big geopolitical strategists, that's what they say. And, and if anybody thinks that Sutton, who is one of the key references for this is, you know, too far out there, well, I would have you know that in Brzezinski's Between Two Ages, he actually cites Sutton as one of his academic sources for talking about the Cold War as a dialectic. So he actually admits that Sutton was uh, correct on this. I mean, unless we just don't believe Brzezinski, but that would be kind of silly to not believe, you know, one of the key dialecticians of of that period. And and Brzezinski uh, starts off, I think, at least two of his books by saying that the East-West shakeup of the Cold War was a dialectic. Now he doesn't call it managed, but to me, I kind of think he's saying it is but um and, and this was to again to uh take all of these countries and restructure them for a long term game of technocracy i don 't know that in you know the nineteen hundreds when Bolshevism first entered russia i 'm not sure that all of the technocrats or excuse me all the industrialists who had put money into the the revolution that they necessarily knew for sure there would be a technocracy down the road, but it wasn't too much long after that that you had Western supporters for uh, Bolshevism actually saying that it was for that, right? So when we get up to the time of uh, H.G. Wells, uh Bertrand Russell, they're actually writing and saying that they're big supporters of Bolshevism because they see it as, quote, a science experiment that basically technocratic scientific governance as an experiment. And so how well that, played out would be in their minds uh you know how successful this could be for a whole global global approach But they, they weren't committed to that necessarily so if Bolshev, bolshevism failed it's okay they can reformulate regroup re-strategize and that's essentially what we see with the same powers uh basically behind you know all, the, the un the imf the world bank uh you know these are all the, the same institutions set up by the exact same people to retool and repurpose Whatever projects failed during the Cold War for this final uh, Hegelian synthesis that we're going into with with you know Davos's plan, Great Reset, and all that.
1: Absolutely, and I think one of the themes being actually recycled from that Cold War period and one of the themes which kept the technocracy in both the USSR and the US alive was this fear of the the greatest evil that can occur to mankind, nuclear war, which I think I've seen in the last year and a half, I mean, we can say almost the year of the Ukrainian conflict, I've not heard the word nuclear war used more in the last two decades, so... We've seen the word nukes used by, you know, both Zelensky and the NATO side. We've seen the French president even openly, Macron, openly say, well, nuclear warfare wouldn't lead to the end of the world. It's actually, it's not an acceptable scenario, but it's a, it's a possibility. So we have these world leaders essentially openly talking about it. And it's almost like a, you can say, predictive programming in a way, or at least... They're bringing back that idea of the proliferation of nuclear warfare, this fear of, hey, it might actually happen. Everybody, um, you know, give us more money or send more aid to Ukraine to prevent it from occurring, or who knows what the actual agenda is. It's similar to how perhaps during the pandemic, they use the, the fear of the actual pandemic itself as a, as a way to, you know, convince people in order to buy into certain strategies mm-hmm. and whatnot. But now at the moment, I've, we just wanted to get your thoughts, Jay, and the fact that, hey, the word nukes has been used over the last year and maybe a bit more than ever before and probably maybe even out both of our lifetimes, I would say, since the 60s, since the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. It's really, I think, a little bit unprecedented. I'm not sure what's behind all of this.
2: Yeah, I was just turning in Quigley to the section where he discusses it because he's really insightful on this point because he talks about the... Um, the stories that were used uh, after the the bombing you know of nagasaki and 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 all that that they realized that how powerful these stories were for just as propaganda stories now i'm not saying that uh people misunderstood me like that i think nuclear fission isn't real or, i never said anything like that what i was saying was that quigley explains the power of the nuke as a psyop that's all uh I'm not saying that there's not nuclear power I'm saying that this the power it doesn't require a lot of nukes going off to scare the crap out of people because Quigley points out that a lot of what was going on with the uh the AEC which is the Atomic Energy Commission he he says this is not me he says that a lot of this wasn't even people who were involved in science there were some scientists but the AEC was mainly made up of people involved in banking and propaganda. And so if you look at Quigley's page 894 and 895, he talks about how the main usage of all of this nuke stuff was for the United Nations to erect its security council. So the United Nations security council would have never existed without all of the so-called nuclear pr- pr- proliferation. But the point is that they seem to have wanted there to be this, uh, ever-present fear of the nuke. For the, for the UN to have its justification. And when, and when we read Bertrand Russell, he basically says the same thing too. He says the reason we need world governments, world governance and technocracy is because of nukes. He says that, that that that's the number one reason. He says, because anybody can get a hold of a nuke now and anybody can, uh, you know, destroy the world with nukes. Which again, this is all just in my view, ridiculous fear mongering. Right. And and to back up Quigley's analysis there, if you go to Alex Abea's book on history of the reincorporation, I mean Abea basically says the same thing about the whole psychological operation of nuclear fears in the Cold War. Again, not saying that there can't be bombs going off or that's not possible, but that the real power in the nuclear story is the story. Right. And it's a lot more it's much more uh, useful as a story than it is for actually destroying entire continents right i mean do you see what i'm saying like because if you destroy an entire continent you know then presumably your continent will be destroyed as well right so this doesn't really there's not much advantage in this but there is a lot of advantage to the perpetual fear of it which justifies a lot of these globalist bureaucracies and globalist control structures and that's the that's the point i'm trying to make that's what that's what they say
0: Well, just think about mutually assured destruction. Oh, yeah, think. I mean, mutually assured destruction only benefits those who have powerful intelligence apparatuses. They can wage complete hybrid warfare against any state they want because every state's now afraid to move any kind of military capacity around because at any point, supposedly, they could just get blown up. And it also pairs into the... The whole energy thing because now it's controversial when a country even wants to supposedly adopt fission and now supposedly fusion developing energy yeah so it's now more you of can a basically control, prevent exactly. yeah you,
2: you can justify any of your moves by this is what is what i'm trying to say no I and completely that's, agree. that's what that's what russell says he's like he's like any, anybody who doubts our move for global governance and who doesn't want that he basically says, you want nuclear war and you're guilty when the rogue state set off the nukes. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, I, but I again, I that kind another, of also says, another thing he also says is funny is that he says that it's the fault of a man that nukes have been created. And he's like, and so he's like, humans have become reckless and they want war and they're going to destroy the planet. And so he, I'm not joking. He actually says that we need to get rid of humans because they created nukes because they're going to destroy the planet. And then he turns around. and He says uh, humans are, uh, you know, scientific uh, geniuses. The, the elite, he's saying, are the scientific geniuses. And he said because we created these wonders like nuclear power. So now wait a minute. Is nuclear power something that is that you blame the masses for and that they need to be destroyed because they created this thing? But also, it's like this great genius invention that the elite came up with. You see what I'm saying like he's so <laughs> he's so slimy and contradictory like that
0: like. This, is, this leads into such a great, something really relevant today, and this leads into Davos and the WF as well. And I don't know if you saw this, when um, Alex Karp, who's the CEO of Palantir and ex-CIA, he said that their software single-handedly stopped the far right in Europe due to supposedly ending Islamic terrorist attacks and catching them before they occur, as well as his product built the same Palantir and their associated things that Alex Carp is in charge of helped spread the covid narrative. So like it's it's really just showing how supposedly this person with their technology and their control of this narrative and their ability to prevent what you could call the logical conclusions of multicultural policy and left-wing policy in Europe. They've put in so much effort to control the narrative surrounding that that someone goes to Davos and could just claim that their software stopped the rise of like fascism or the right wing or whatever reaction would have come against the tide of multiculturalism in Europe. I'm wondering your thoughts on that and the WEF this year 2020 me in general. 2023,
2: rather. Um, yeah. So I did pay quite a bit of attention to Davos this year because I think, uh, I think my first Davos video was 2016 or 2017. So it's something that I have had on my radar for a good while now. I've read a significant amount of Klaus's works as well as other attendees, and you know, I've looked into the history of Davos. So, you know, it represents uh one of these sort of steering committee front piece. Uh, operation. So, you know, it's basically the people from Bilderberg have a, a more public version of Bilderberg, which is what I think Davos is, World Economic Forum. And this comes out of the uh, period during the Cold War when Kissinger, uh, through Harvard, it's called the Harvard Research Project. Uh, they wanted to set up another one of these steering committees after they had basically set up a million other ones. Uh, and so he came up with the idea to recruit, uh, Klaus, um, and it was actually a CIA operation. So Klaus was recruited, uh, via a CIA project known as World Economic Forum in Davos. And it's all the same suspects, all the same people who, uh, according to David Rockefeller's memoirs, it was him, um, Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, the SS guy, uh, and some other, you know, well, very wealthy people who basically set up Bilderberg. So Bilderberg is the root of Davos. Davos is public Bilderberg. I think Klaus used to be the steering committee guy for bilderberg at one point so it's all the same corporate elite of the west this thing atlantis this corporate elite and so i'm not surprised that palantir you know would be there saying that uh claiming that they've been claiming these kinds of things for a long time and that's what a lot of internet security private security internet companies were, were have been championing that they can steer narratives they can prevent crimes pre-crime is what a lot of these people are even even pushing now and really all this is is just Highly invasive surveillance that, um, sometimes even makes up threats that they, you know, it's like when the FBI provocateurs and then they <laughs> come in and like bust their own people. Ah, see, we stopped the terror. We stopped the terror event that we ourselves were prov- uh, provocateuring. So we're the heroes. And it's kind of the same thing that I think in my view, a lot of these, uh,
0: well, it's like the Spider-Man meme where everyone's just pointing at each other and it's like, right yeah. like. <laughs> Yeah, so uh
2: no I wasn't actually aware that uh that they were saying that, but I'm not surprised because that's I think a lot of this stuff is is it's kind of controlled from the top down. I mean, you know that this Klaus was saying for the last few years that the next big thing would be cyber polygon that we would see uh you know mass internet outages and uh cyber attacks and that was all coming to disrupt the west and oh it's going to be China, it's going to be Iran, it's going to be Russia, it's all the usual suspects, but you know, we can all recall from the uh, WikiLeaks Ball 7 that actually anything can be spoofed. So that couldn't entirely be the West. <laughs> you know what I mean? W- when this happens, right?
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because Klaus Schwab just on, on that same note. He, he is the only person almost uh, that we've seen that Zelensky actually appears in a suit before and like kind of presents himself in a more or less presentable fashion, at least in 2022. And of course, Zelensky did send his wife, Alona Zelenska, to actually visit Davos and speak at the WEF as a sort of envoy. So his closest person, the person he loves the most, he sent as an ambassador of his views. And I think in many ways, just over the Ukrainian conflict in general, like the involvement of the WEF is, is almost as, it's almost as explicit as, as say their involvement in the pandemic. It's, it's almost, and you know, people say as a, it could be like a cliche jargon argument. You can say, well, the Ukrainian conflict replaced uh, the pandemic as this uh, as this sort of issue that the Eye of Sauron stares at and gets everybody's attention, pushes their attention towards it. But um, in many ways, I think that's exactly what it is. And regardless of the actual facts on the ground, the war in the Donbass for years, you know, all of the actual events happening, it's it does seem like. Uh, at least for the last, at least a year, we're coming up to the year on the 25th, 24th of February, the World Economic Forum and the, all these structures, they do want to point the world's attention towards Ukraine, towards, uh, you know, the crimes that allegedly Russia has committed over the last year. And of course, this is all underpinned by, of course, these Bilderberg figures running it from the in the background of Klaus Schwab. And even more, I think, uh, even more esoteric, I suppose, and this is based on two of the books he have written, esoteric Hollywood is just the fact that Zelensky himself is a very esoterically Hollywood character. And in many ways, he's not, he's not American Hollywood, but he's a, he's basically the king of Ukrainian Hollywood. He's the, he played in the, um, he played a president of Ukraine in the public servant TV show, which aired from 2015 until 2019 three seasons. So he actually played a president of Ukraine before he was elected president. And I mean, if that's not a PSYOP predictable programming sort of Um, you know, mini project. I don't know what is. And of course, there's, you could almost compare him to like an Arnold Schwarzenegger who, you know, famously has attended Bohemian Grove several times. I remember Alex Jones reporting on this in the, during the Obama years. So Arnold Schwarzenegger being a complete, you know, Western. Arnold actually
2: attended uh, uh, Bilderberg too.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. That's, there we go. (laughs) So it's even bigger than that. And so Zelensky is this, uh, I guess, Eastern European version of an Arnold, as weird as it sounds. And the fact right. that an entire nation follows him and believes him is—it's um, almost like a, like if the pandemic was a test towards control, Zelensky is like a test towards how far would you follow? Um, yeah, you know, such a figure. Yeah,
2: and Ukraine is slated to be, and there's multiple reasons why, I know you guys know this, but you know Ukraine is a, a key a strategic region. Uh, Brzezinski actually years be- before all this had written about what would need to be need to happen in Ukraine. So actually Brzezinski kind of planned out and stated that there would be this Ukraine conflict, perhaps even all the way back in uh, Grand Chessboard, but also he mentions Ukraine in uh, Strategic Vision, which I think he wrote around 2015, 16, somewhere in there, maybe 2014. So this was kind of you know, this was planned out obviously a long time ago, and and we know that you know the the uh Soros uh, color revolution stuff had been there, the Orange Revolution going all the way back to the eighties and nineties. So, you know, this is this was a long time in the works, and that's because you know the West knows the importance of Ukraine uh for this keeping Russia at bay and you know, breadbasket, all that stuff, back to Hitler. I mean, and and even back to World War One, which is essentially where the where Ukraine comes from. But, you know, Hitler had this same idea and and the the existence of, uh, you know, these Nazi networks, these Azov battalion, all this kind of stuff, that goes back to World War II as well. Because the West, through the uh, Galen network, Otto Skorzeny, all these, you know, Nazis that were actually training you know, black ops people in a lot of different intelligence agencies. That, that's the networks for where all these, these things come from, going back to World War II. So it's still, it's still a key region, still a strategic uh, area because the West it just, it's just kind of like it's flipped from new, new masters, right? Or ultimately, I guess you could say it was always the same masters in the Ukraine, but yeah. And there's also the, the elements that have come out with the bio labs that were there and that most likely they might have been working on race specific genetic specific weapons targeted perhaps at Slavs. That's another reason for the conflict. So there's a lot going on with that, but I think that. If we know the, the history of World War II, if we know the Cold War, we know that Ukraine is, is a key area. And it's also slated to be one of these future, uh, like 5G, 6G, Skynet, uh, places. So they want, they want to experiment with Ukraine as one of these, uh, like a future smart city state. I don't know if you've seen that, but there's a lot of information that came out, especially in the last year about what they want to do with Ukraine in regard to like smart city type stuff. So that's another element of this, I think. <clears throat> I think uh, Tristan did a really good video on that. I don't Do you guys know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And not even that, yeah. like even during the pandemic, like, like Kiev and El Vav, I believe were two of the main cities that literally had like app, your red, yellow, green fac- effect, yeah. your vaccine status with your test. Like yeah, it was, exactly. And they were able to do this because of, because of just the amount of NATO NGO U S just, yeah. it's just an entirely propped up that's state. Why, so they could yeah. just run wild.
2: And that's why Zelensky was what a couple week or two ago was up there saying, if you want to get good business opportunity, come to Ukraine.
0: If you're a Fortune 100, got
2: good business for you here.
0: (laughs) I guess you you guys saw that clip, right? Oh, yeah. And Larry Fink is like, yeah, we agree. But you got to end this conflict because he recognizes the rising like he recognizes the danger the petrodollar is facing right now. And some of these other things that are going to that are going to break his bank if things don't kind of going the way they need to start
1: going in his mind naturally and there's all kinds of say local corruption as well coming in from the you know ecclesiological side kind of off topic but in the same in the same sort of vein we are speaking about ukraine and you have this absolutely insane schism which for whatever reason still hasn't ended and uh you have not not just the, you know schismatic stealing churches from the orthodox folks just like they would in the you know communist period you'd, you'd have things which almost ripped out of straight out of uh, Archipelago Gulag and also the early 1930s and 20s when the Russian church was essentially, well, when the Bolsheviks created a mirror church. And so you have Zelensky essentially supporting the schismatics as well. So he's not even pretending to be an anti-Christian. He's saying, you know, I'm still supporting Christians, but just not not your main church, I'm supporting these schismatics here. And of course, all the crimes follow on from this, where we have, you know, reports of priests getting stabbed, churches being burnt down, you know, obviously uh, liturgy is being stopped, interrupted by people just coming in and raiding it. Um, You know, all these threats to real estate bishops.
2: Having raves in the the churches.
1: Oh gosh, I, I don't even, I have no comments on that. Like, I mean, they were, they were, yeah, exactly. They were having raves, disco parties and staging opera plays like Ukrainian local ones in the actual the main monastery of Ukraine, which is one thousand years old, it's as old as Mount Athos. It's essentially like as old as Mount Athos itself. This monastery and the staging of playing it, the level of sacrilege here, it's almost as it's almost akin to a humiliation ritual for the Ukrainian people themselves. not even mocking the Russians, but actually mocking the local Ukrainians or the, the folks that, who actually lived in this area. It's as if, you know, just saying that look, we've conquered you, and we're going to make fun of your a thousand-year-old Orthodox Christian tradition, and you're not going to do anything about it. So it it really is a, it's really explicit. Yeah, and it's
2: important to understand that the, the Fordham University, the Jesuits, a lot of these groups were already operative in operation at the same time in parallel with the CIA Soros operations of the color revolutions in the Ukraine preparing for where we are now for years. That's what the ecumenists and the uniates and the jesuits were also there in the ukraine doing to help and to promote and so they were the ones behind essentially fostering this ecumenist movement there as well as the evangelical protestant groups which also have cia uh, cover there um as, as sort of fronts for the cia that uh hackard has, has documented in several of his essays of soul the east and an espionage history archive and then we get into the history of the state department really putting pressure on the ep to recognize the schismatics in my view this is just part and parcel with the geopolitical strategy of the color revolutions to politically make the ukraine into essentially a uh, western uh vassal puppet state now you do the exact same move by creating a parallel western ca puppet church and isn't that ironic because I thought that's what Bolsheviks did. Oh, and then here we are, the CIA doing the exact same thing in the Ukraine and in Macedonia. And so what we see is that this is just a, a model and a strategy that the geopolitical power does, whether they have a communist ideology, whether they have a, a socialist or whether they have a capitalist, neoliberal ideology. It's the same strategy of attempting to create your own parallel <laughs> episcopate that goes along with your puppet government that you put in place. And uh, I've been recently, I've been reading a lot of, texts on the history of East German Stasi and their means and methods of infiltrating the Roman Catholic Church. Now, obviously, I'm not Roman Catholic, but I'm very interested in that topic because it's going to be the same model, the same application as to what's happening in the Orthodox world. And I think we're already seeing that. And the reason that matters is that, of course, in the U.S., the Orthodox Church I expect it's already sort of happening that they're intentionally, I think, splitting it down the middle. So they want to drive a wedge down the middle, not just to the church in Ukraine or in Macedonia or what, but everywhere. So essentially, the, the Orthodox Church, especially in America, is going to be split down the middle between the EP, ecumenist, uh, much of the OCA that will go along with that, go arch. They want to be under the EP. And then the EP will uh, essentially for uh, 2025, 2030. They're already talking about the possibility of a new Florence, a new union with, with Francis. And so that's the ultimate goal here.
0: Well, and is it so hard to see Ukraine being the vassal for that? Just think of the institutions that are so involved in whether it's ecumenism or Western support in Ukraine. I would say the two biggest institutions, unironically, are the Vatican and the Canadian government. And I don't yeah. think there's any – I don't think there's two institutions that are more thoroughly corrupted to you know the neoliberal power that currently is – reaping power reaping benefits on the world like and it's it's so you can just predict what's happening by looking at it like the ukrainian greek catholic church is going to be it's it's the uh, it's the quote-unquote orthodox country where the roman catholics get the most have the most influence and we all know why that's happened that goes back to world war one and two right and you can see how far back all of these plans go for what fundamentally is, I still, I do believe this. I don't think it's a coincidence that all these zones that are targeted by the government, whether it's Kosovo and Serbia, Ukraine and Russia, Cyprus and Turkey, all these places that are currently in these, whether it's how active or not, whether they're frozen, whether they're not so frozen, these zones, it 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 really all comes down to orthodoxy in a lot of ways. And sure you have China and Taiwan, but there's just to ignore the targeting of orthodoxy and the canonical church by the empire and the powers that be, I think is just silly. And you mentioned all of the predictions from Brzezinski and these others on what was going to go on in Ukraine. Well, you know who else was predicting all of that? The actual Russian and Ukrainian Orthodox saints of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. St. Lawrence of Chernigov, St. Seraphim of Viritsa. Me and Dmitry have talked about these all on the show. They said the exact same thing, that after the fall of the Soviet Union, there will be a little peace, and then there will be a great war in Ukraine, and a schism in the church will come out of Ukraine. And the people in Russia, the Russians, the true believers, will greet the Russian army with, with joy. Like that's what the prophecies say. And I've seen countless videos of that exact kind of thing happening. So it seems that you either had to be digging in to the truth of the matter and the, and the hidden texts and the, and the conspiracies, or, you know, really reading the words of local Orthodox saints, or else you just weren't going to have this one figured out. Yeah. It sounds to me Those those are the ways to break through the narrative here.
2: Well, it's amazing the parallels in, in many of these cases. I mean, you mentioned some there, but uh, there's many as uh, on Mount Athos as well, right. Of people who's like, like this, the only people that seem to be, really know what's going on is like the elders and, uh, Brzezinski and Kissinger, right? <laughs> like, like they, that's who knows what's going on because they end up saying the same types of stuff. Exactly. You're exactly right. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I've been reading about John Paul and the alliances with the CIA, uh, particularly during the Cold War, uh, mainly under uh, William Casey via sort of black back, backdoor networks like Opus Dei. And what happened was with that Opus Dei basically offered to pay a lot of the – they gave a lot of money basically to to Rome when there was a lot of debt from the pedo uh scandals and lawsuits. And so by doing that, the exchange there was John Paul gave a special prelature and recognition to Opus Dei. And what that did was that kind of linked them directly with the Vatican Bank. And it became a kind of a funnel for a lot of Cold War propaganda funding, uh, Vatican Bank, Mafia operations. I mean, all that kind of stuff is, is directly connected to that. And what happened with that was that the CIA, mainly through uh, William Casey and Colonel Casaroli, who was the Vatican, uh, kind of, uh, state, I guess you call him the Vatican statesman. He's like the Kissinger of the Vatican, maybe. Uh, who's also, by the way, the, the, uh, Vatican's, uh, counterintelligence spy, ruder outer guy. So he would, he's the one that would, uh, root out all the Stasi and KGB moles in the Vatican and had 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 a pretty close alliance obviously with the CIA um and what happened was that they decided that they would make this direct alliance with the CIA for the Cold War because of course the idea was well you know the the worst uh, of to these two evils is the communist atheist state but the problem is that they had now aligned themselves and and taken on new masters and those new masters are the masters of, you know, neoliberal capital. And the the masters of neoliberal capital, as I've been thinking more and more about it and looking at the modus operandi of Klaus and all these technocrats, uh, you know, if you if you look at the Stasi, the way they operated, what they want to bring is actually ten times worse than the Stasi. Like what the technocrats want is like the Stasi times ten with all of the same harassment, social credit score. I mean, all this kind of stuff basically existed in East Germany and in a kind of a primitive form. Um, and you would get harassed and you would get, you know, you, you couldn't, uh, you know, get necessary foods. You couldn't do this or that. You would have people, you know, following you around. Well, now it's going to be like the purple hair people eater, you know, (laughs) Stasi who, or actually just an algorithm, right. That's going to, that's going to have all this in place. That's what they want. and, you know, we'll watch a movie like The Lives of Others, which doesn't, in my view, the point is not to glorify Western neoliberalism versus East German Sovietism or, or, or Stasi uh, tyranny. It's actually that the point is that everybody, everybody can see that what's in the Stasi mindset is bad. But if that's the case, then what the technocrats are trying to push is 10 times worse than that. So how how could anybody not be against the Atlantis' as technocratic great reset model when it's 10 times worse than the Stasi, which nobody's a huge fan of. I mean, maybe there's somebody who's like a Stasi defender out there. I don't know, but
0: don't get on here, bro. We just debated Haas. Don't call him back.
2: <laughs> I just found kind it of fascinating that, you know, diving into the modus operandi of the Stasi and how they worked is like, Hey, this is actually what Klaus and everybody's doing, but like on a global scale, Tendo's worse.
1: And of course, uh, this mirrors exactly what we, you know, not just what we see in the Ukraine with the SBU, the Ukrainian version of the FBI KGB. Essentially, they're taking photo shoots outside of the churches, like standing there in their uniforms outside of closed Orthodox monasteries. I'm not sure why they did that photo shoot in the first place. There's like hundreds of photos online of closed Orthodox churches with Ukrainian FBI SBU troops essentially officers standing outside, Ukrainian feds, yeah. you can say. And it's like, why, why would they post these photos with the Ukrainian government logo in the corner somewhere? And I'm just like, hold on, is this just the... I mean, it, it's obviously they're reporting to someone like this is evidence of their work, or I'm not sure. It's... <laughs> Um, it's, it's kind of hard to put my finger on it, but again, uh, we see this in Ukraine, this version, as you mentioned, of like Stasi, this governmental, uh, you know, shutdown and coercion of Orthodoxy and, and you know, pressuring and harassing, uh, Christian churches, uh, you know, and the Roman Catholic Church for, as an example. Now, right. uh, we saw that in the US as well during the pandemic and Western countries. I mean, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the UK. Uh, that was a version as well of, Hey, how far can we push Christians to, you know, Bend to the state's will, and how you know how many churches can we close? How many you know masks can we put on people, etc. Like, of course, that's a controversial subject in and of itself. But I think that plus what we see in the Ukraine, these are all again uh, they all stem from you know similar roots, I think, and maybe their, their inspiration again lies in what the Stasi were doing, what the KGB were doing in the Soviet Union, and you know maybe even what well, you know, Hitler was. doing. Know,
2: Klaus has that Klaus has that bust of Lenin behind him, and and I understand that. You know, later Soviet philosophy wasn't identical to uh, to Lenin per se, but I think that you know he, he's someone who draws inspiration from these kinds of figures because the the power of Bolshevism was in its ability to create new markets. I mean, that's what Sutton says: is that the the real reason that the industrialists and the uh, money power in the West were such big fans of Bolshevism wasn't anything to do with ideology per se. But mainly to do with when the wrecking ball of Bolshevism comes through, it destroys existing structures, wipes out a lot of the tradition, the heritage, creates a consolidation of markets and money that can then be transferred offshore. So it's basically just a creation of a new market. And we know that, you know, a lot of warfare in the 20th century, you know, a la Butler, that's essentially what it's about, right? It's about creating new markets, destroying to come in with the contractors and rebuild, et cetera and i think that's what's going on with ukraine right now but it's just ironic to me that how many people especially you know the so-called conservatives in the west or in in uh christianity in the west or in the catholic church the tradcats or and even the neocons in the orthodox world who you know love to you know reminisce over the struggles and the how how hard it was you know to deal with you know persecution by uh, Soviets during the Cold War of the Church and the Orthodox Church was had a parallel structure created that was a fake KGB, and then here they're doing the exact same thing in Ukraine. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? It's the same model that the West, the CIA, is doing in the Ukraine.
0: Are you crazy? Well, and I think Jay, that really leads us into some. I want to ask you about this. This is a bit of a. This might seem a bit of a convoluted question, but I think it gets us to a good place. We were mentioning earlier the. You almost, if you're not, you're either paying attention to the elders or you're uncovering the deep, real conspiracy lore. And from an epistemological perspective, you compare, I would say, orthodoxy or the consensus patrim or just the writings of the saints over any given century, maybe the past 200 years. And you compare perhaps what you could call the geopolitics or the perspective on reality that you might come away with after reading that compared to, say, a Roman Catholic who follows Fatima and the other things or the popes and their geopolitical allegiances, or I would say even Islam and some of its geopolitical findings and other thoughts, of course, secularism and neoliberalism, we know, where that leads you. But these other Marxism, communism, all these kind of worldviews and perspectives, I, I really do think that that transcending ideology and just reading the saints and understanding orthodoxy and orthodox history is the way to fundamentally have some clarity in some of these things. And I want to know, as someone who has devoted so much of his time to orthodox epistemology, how would you bridge those two kinds of things where, of course, in the philosophical realm, we have presuppositional apologetics, orthodoxy, and Trinitarianism, and the the clarity and understanding of knowledge, metaphysics, and ethics that those bring us? But when it comes to these kind of psyops and in this world, I think in many ways, the same principles apply in how we can see through that nonsense. Do you agree? Yeah, I think that one doesn't have to get a bunch of,
2: you know, geopolitical texts and tomes to figure out what's going on. One can go that route if you're so inclined. But like you said, I mean, there's a lot of clarity that comes with just a kind of a spiritual simplicity that we find a lot of the orthodox elders and writers that discuss these topics i mean paesios for example saint paesios talks very very clearly about you know the movement towards world order father seraphim rose talks about this movement towards technocratic world order and the world religion and all, all these kinds of things orthodox the religion the future um what is it spiritual councils or i think it's uh, the the yeah. same i have one of the volumes i don't have all the four of the volumes but um, reading them yeah, now as well they're really good you know you can find a lot of this material it's kind of buried here and there in different um but you're right that they just kind of treat it with a, just a clear obvious simplicity oh yeah of course there's a movement for total tracking and tracing and it's of course it's you know spirit, spirit of antichrist and of course it's you know involved uh, it's behind these movements uh that we see in ukraine macedonia you know trying to split the church in america as well it's coming down to the church in america too so just get ready for that it's already happening. We already know about situations in the, OSA, or the OCA or the OCI, I should say, where this is coming. <laughs> uh, not everybody in the OCA is bad. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but uh, there's a lot of good people there. But there's also a contingent that, you know, really wants to persecute. Along the same lines, um, these fault lines that we're talking about, but you're right that it could just be bypassed by going to people like you're mentioning.
0: No, I think as well that, Like you mentioned, Father Seraphim Rose, and this and these these people, these a lot of these writings as well with Saint Paisios are written for for monks or for simple people, and it's kind of the simplicity of the faith and the and the complexity that comes with with politics and like people that are like they're not you might not say they're conspiracy theorists they're just really into the news and politics like that is the. That is exactly the like, kind of distractions that come with the mediums that we're in today. And kind of as a follow-up to that last question, on the internet is ablaze with AI voice deepfakes, video deepfakes. I think it's such a perfect we're, we're finding it's perfect. We're having Jay on, such a fantastic epistemologist, I would say, in his work on presenting that we're kind of entering, I would say, a new era of discerning truth. And the real takeaway, as well, is how long have the governments of the world, or really the the powers that really be, in the you know. British, American, Israeli, Atlantic establishment have been just completely faking us out with completely realistic, deep voice audio and video fakes. Like now I have friends, you can run 10 minutes of someone's podcast through it and have perfect audio. It's insane.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a crisis of credibility. um And it's also kind of a deep psyop that uh, certain writers had written about even 20 years ago. I think even Hoffman had mentioned maybe 20 years ago that the emergence of the internet and the never ending scroll uh would have this destabilizing effect about people basically not trusting anything and then what that does is that that will kind of put everybody in this position where they're going kind to of default just assume that this new deus ex machina of ai is now some sort of like superior form of oh this is like the meta authority now it'll have this semi god status it's already getting that people on the internet are making these dumb videos as if chat gpt was like going to take over the world and it's so amazing so dude that's that thing was like the lamest wokest it's just like talking to somebody on reddit dude that thing was garbage i i had about 10 minutes of arguing with it and making and i was like this is just comedy clips man this is making gold comedy clips for me i i prepped up that thing and like in 2 minutes it contradict. it's just and it was just it was like it's like it's like Reddit GPT. That's all it is, dude. It's just soy, total soy wokeness. Um, now, yeah, maybe there's some super advanced version that DARPA has that we don't know about that's, you know, really gonna screw everything up. That's possible, but I, I think a lot of that is hype and propaganda. And I, I see a lot of people, you know, all over YouTube, especially making all these videos. Oh, Chat GPT is taking over the world. It's everything. It's all everything. Nobody's gonna have jobs anymore. I mean, that thing was garbage, dude. I don't know if you guys have played with it, but, uh, I would recommend playing with it just for 10 minutes to see how garbage it is. <laughs> you see how silly it is. I mean, I've asked it like tons of questions and literally like half of them it can't do. It can't answer. It doesn't know what, what it is. And the answers are all the, when, especially if you ask about something controversial, the answers are all, you know, super woke, lame. I mean, I just think it's garbage, but, uh, it is going to continue to be pushed as this new semi-divine authority figure and i think it's intended to fill the vacuum it's a scam but it's intended to fill the vacuum that people's crisis of credibility uh you know is is seeking
1: yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this kind of leads into, you know, back in the past, a thousand years ago, when the schism first occurred, you had, say, the Roman Catholic Church, for example, relying on, a like, just launching a bunch of forgeries. And perhaps this is the new millennium's <laughs> version. <laughs> and it's, exactly. So, and I, I even, when I read old Russian texts, like these forgeries, like the donation of the Pope Sylvester to Constantine. No, they're
2: the, they're forgeries, yeah, uh, <laughs> Exactly, yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, I feel like they can almost like you know uh, you can uh, you can imagine an old speech from say Putin from 2009 somebody could go back and sort of uh just change his words around and then you know launch that clip onto youtube and say hey look what Putin said in 2009 and everyone nobody will question it but you know in fact it'll be a soldiery so there we are i think that's definitely a possibility in the new in the new century like who knows what exactly will come of this but yeah um i just wanted to mention just for the listeners uh for those you know saying oh why would klaus schwab this big capitalist you know for any socialist minded folks listening why would klaus schwab have a bust of lenin in the back well you must understand lenin is this you're almost like a uniting figure for not just the globalists but also all these various uh, you can say forces of Satan around the world, for example, the communists really adore him he 's also maybe one of the perpetrators, not maybe but definitely a culprit of you know orthodox regicide essentially, he was in charge of you know murdering the Tsar alongside with his family, and on top of that destroying Russia, you know persecuting the church quite openly and the Harvard uh, Ukrainian Studies journal, which I believe is a quarterly or A monthly journal in 2018 released the, you know, the cover art was a statue of Lenin in uh, blue and yellow, you know, painted in blue and yellow from 2018. So even the Harvard University admits that Lenin is the founder of Ukraine and Putin actually says this on February the 24th when the operation began in his 45 minute opening sort of speech. He says, Hey, by the way, in our archives, it says Lenin is one of the founders of Ukraine. So why are you guys? You know Ukraine. You know you guys shouldn't be neo Nazis, you know, because your state is founded. And Putin basically took a shot at Zelensky and friends. But Putin was right, and Harvard admits this. And so Lenin is this uniting figure where which unites not just liberals, capitalists, communists, Satanists, Bolsheviks, like all these bizarre, dark. Uh, it's it's very interesting, and obviously Lenin also was in some ways a pawn who was sent in as a front man because even in his speeches he wasn't he was a good giving speeches. But it's bizarre how they. They're actually okay with having the front man unite them, whereas the big boys lead from the back. And Zelensky, in many ways, is this new Lenin, is this new Kerensky-type figure who's leading from the front, but obviously he's not the guy making these huge decisions. Like, this is what people need to understand. Yeah, yeah so...
2: Great analogies there, yeah. The chat, GBT, is basically <laughs> <laughs> the papal forgeries today, and then Zelensky is basically kind of a new Lenin. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, look. If people weren't paying attention though, and just came onto Twitter, they'd think Trump is a Blade fan, and that Ben Shapiro has a thing for AOC, and whatever else. They'd see these AI things mm-hmm. telling them to believe they're getting pretty crazy, which is really affecting my decision to maybe have my face on future live streams and episodes. If people can run that through an algorithm and make me do and say whatever they want me to, it's a little spooky. I'll be honest. Yeah, I saw. Did you see the one of
2: Trump talking about how nobody wanted gay Ron Swanson on that TV show?
0: I didn't see that one yet. To say that,
2: yeah. So, so if you don't know the video game Last of Us, right? It's it's like a popular, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, HBO show now. And the last episode, they had Ron, the guy that plays Ron Swanson, on there, basically being Ron Swanson, but now he's gay. Uh, and then I somebody heard about did the a, flamboyant homosexuality at the somebody, end, yeah. somebody did a Trump. Did it sound just like Trump? Right? It's, it's <laughs> a fake of Trump. Like,
1: <laughs> can you believe this? They've got him gay. Nobody wants to do this.
2: Is terrible, and then it's you know I can't a bunch of stuff I can't say on YouTube, but yeah, it's funny.
0: Yeah, no. If people. I mean, I've I've bookmarked some of them and saved some of because I know they're going to get banned. But there's it's 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 a bit of a free for all now. And you realize if people can right. make these with ten minutes of of footage from some from a clip and a, and a free thing online, like right. let's be honest, are you going to believe? Like, is every is all the footage and things they've supposedly shown you to convince you of some atrocity or some reason to go to war or something? Are you going right. to just jump right on that? I think this is a good reason to uh, not do that in the future.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Anything else you guys want to get into before we uh kinda of close out my segment?
0: Uh honestly no. Unless there's anything you want to talk about, I'm gonna we're gonna see You're, you in uh we're in gonna, gonna see you, you in right. uh in before February, bro. I'm gonna here. see you. IRL and uh I think uh, I'm looking forward to that. Seeing you in Austin. We've got some uh some mm. buddies coming out from the parish. And oh, uh sweet.
2: yeah. Yeah, I want to remind people if they do want to get tickets to the event, you can go to my Twitter, you can go to my website. It's the uh, the links to Eventbrite, and it's the event at February 11th uh, right outside of uh, UT, Austin. We'll be having two hours of comedy, me and BG Cumbie. And then Jamie will be giving her uh, hour-and-a-half talk on Hollywood, AI, and transhumanism. And then I'll be giving my uh, hour-and-a-half talk on... Apologetics, epistemology, and my meta narratives book, and then we'll have Q and A Q&A and book signing. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, go ahead and get your tickets now. It's a basically an all day event. It's going to be it's going to be a blast.
0: Yeah, no, Jay, I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you on the show again in the future. I recommend everyone watch his interview with Dr. Steve Turley that happened recently. That went really well. Oh, yeah. uh, we're all very uh, proud of that one. Thank and. You. Yeah, no, we're, me and Dimitri are going to get into the news a little bit here, but uh, thank you so much, Jay. And yeah, I would uh, add
2: to uh, that um, I went pretty deep into the Cold War, John Paul II, the JP2 Alliance of the mm-hmm. CIA, Opus Dei, um, all of that uh, in last night's stream. So if anybody's interested, we did a, a three-hour thing on that, as well as uh, how Marian apparitions have, are tooled for Cold War propaganda, especially the uh, Bay Bayside, which, which I think were obvious. Uh, you know, Intel psyops that you can can go get into that. My, my stream I did last night, so it's pretty deep.
0: Yeah, no, we'll uh, have that linked below. We'll also have Jay's philosophy course that he did. Uh, with oh, yeah, 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 we'll you. have that linked below, which uh, I think everyone should do. It's uh if you're, especially if you've kind of felt like you, you're overwhelmed, you're just getting into this stuff, and you have you feel like you have to watch forty-seven thousand hours of Jay live stream. Just, <laughs> right. just just do the course. I think I think, course, that's, yeah. I think that, that's a good thing to do. You know, support the cause a little bit. But yeah. Right. Jay, thank you so much. Uh, Absolutely. We we're really thank grateful you for your work, and, uh, and uh, we appreciate it. Well, likewise. Keep up the good work, and God bless you guys. Have a good night. All right. Thank you very much, Jay. That was fantastic. We are going to get into a bit of the news now, do a bit of World War Now, normal style, get into things, wrap things up. But in the break that we just took after that clip, it seems that World War Three has begun. China has attacked America. There are explosions in the sky over Montana. Total yellow dawn imminent uh china and r- america are at war I- i'm just kidding of course i've honestly no idea exactly what's happening but this whole chinese balloon thing has really taken the world by storm you know we told we were just talking about how iran is kind of taking the place of ukraine and now taking the place of every other distraction apparently there are large chinese surveillance balloons over the heads of every united states civilian and now there's multiple apparently some are coming up from south america you know i guess this situation unfolding so follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore Telegram, World War Now Telly to keep up with the the unfolding situation, but it's uh it's definitely I, whatever is the case that this is, it'll most likely be used as a excuse and rhetorical escalation against China. We we've seen this from conservative Inc. as well. More people are people that were always kind of skeptical of the Russia Ukraine thing are now making it clear. Tucker Carlson, I think, made this clear, even though he did have Jimmy Dore on as well to respond. I give him credit for that. Tucker Carlson expressed some support for a war with China. So it seems that at the very least, whatever this balloon thing is will be used in that direction, rhetorically speaking from the United States.
1: Yeah, definitely. It does seem like a catalyst to sort of shift, uh, shift the discussion back to, you know, maybe what it was like during the Donald Trump trade war with China, but maybe this is even more extreme than a trade war because the trade war on one hand was actually a very sensible thing to do by the Trump administration. Now that Biden has canceled that and has reestablished, so to speak, ties with China that, um, you know, there maybe needs to be an escalation of a different kind, maybe a more military um, geopolitical land related in the you know yellow Sea Taiwan, perhaps um, south China sea so uh, what we 're going to essentially be viewing as soon I guess in the next week is exactly how China will respond to the shooting down of its balloons, uh, but most importantly is that you may ask, well how do you know these balloons are chinese well it 's already been confirmed by American officials in uh, I believe one or two press conferences at least during this weekend on the uh, on the fourth of February 2023, that yes indeed these balloons are Chinese. So they actually do belong to China and yeah they are flying over the United States and South America. So exactly what the outcome will be, I guess we'll see in the coming hours, possibly days. And definitely by next week next week's episode we'll have a proper synopsis of exactly why this took place. And yeah, again, um, just as we mentioned with Jay, there is a certain Ukraine fatigue. So most of these stories, as soon as notice as soon as the stories break, they distract the audience and the attention of the the people on Twitter, the people on mass media, social media away from the Ukrainian conflict because Zelensky is getting boring. Of course, uh, people are tired of hearing about him asking for aid, and uh, you know we'll speak about the Ukrainian conflict in a bit. But generally speaking, it, it has been uh, kind of on the on the downslope in terms of actual searchability. People talking about it, uh, people are not googling it, Ukraine as much. It has fallen in uh, popularity. Well, and I think
0: in many ways, we got to wait for what the Chinese government says. That's not to say that what they would say is gospel, but I'm curious as to how they'll respond. In many ways, this shows, I mean, if you listen to my podcast about space with Anthony of Westgate, we know about satellites and their real balloon-like nature in regards. So this is a bit of a curtain drawback moment in that regard regarding our overtold by NASA and some other things. But as well, we're seeing, like I'm literally seeing on Telegram now, Jack Posobiec, Steve Bannon, the usual China hawks. They're having these big headlines and graphics. CCP has violated American airspace over a nuclear arsenal. There's that nuclear scare stuff again that we were talking about earlier. So we're, we're really seeing this happen. We know that China ultimately benefits from waiting on the Taiwan thing and I think hopes to have a more peaceful integration as time goes on. But the U.S., of course, would benefit from stoking China, crossing its red lines, which it has done many times. China has has made it clear that they're not really willing at this point to really engage Taiwan militarily. but there are it does seem that the US is willing to keep pushing and pushing to perhaps provoke that conflict sooner, so that China's strategic advantages that come with waiting, whether it's the decline of US military power or the uh decline of Taiwanese nationalism within Taiwan itself and support for the CPC grows there, both of those are to China's advantage, so the US could seek to accelerate a conflict to uh to perhaps prevent those long term advantages from growing
1: Yeah, that's right. And you know a I- the best offense is a good defense. So you might say, well, the United States is, you know, is trillions of dollars in debt. It's military, uh, you know, stocks are actually being flown to the Ukraine as we speak. They're actually being transferred. So stockpiles are running low. How could, how could it actually scare China in sort of. You know, pushing, pushing, flying Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, flying all these politicians to Taiwan, actually giving a show of force. Well, in many ways, like the Ukrainian conflict itself has shown that, you know, if China was to strike upon Taiwan, could the, could US aid actually, um, you know, bolster up Taiwanese resistance towards China? I many, you know, nobody really saw Russia being actually slowed down in Ukraine this much. So, in, In by supporting Ukraine and holding back the Russian military for almost a year at this point, the US has scared China, I believe, at least slightly into not considering making any aggressive political moves in its, you know, in its vicinity, you know, in order to, um, basically in order to support its own agenda geopolitically. The US is, of course, not interested in China, you know, expanding or regaining any of its formerly lost territories. So, you know, Hong Kong was. A concession that was given, but again, Taiwan would be something that China has been eyeing for you know decades now at this point. But you know, China does see Russia's Russia's sort of uh, slight struggles in the Ukraine, and I think it is aware of that. It may face certain struggles of a similar kind in Taiwan if if the US begins, you know, of course, buffing up the Taiwanese military as well. I think that's a possibility. I know that's very much in the realm of hypothetical, but nobody really saw a six seven years ago the same. You know, being done to the Ukraine. I mean, nobody had this in the, in their yearly bingo cards, you know, seven, eight years ago. So, yeah, that's definitely a possibility, I think.
0: No, and as China, we, we've seen North Korea throw its explicit support behind Russia in the special military operation. We know there's close collaboration with the Chinese and, of course, the North Koreans. So, that could be a hint as to where the th- tides are going behind the scenes as far as overt support for what Russia's doing. But many are saying that from a geopolitical clash with the West and the Atlantic bloc. Like if China goes, it's really over. Whereas in theory, China could perhaps lose Russia in a way, not that they could fight against Russia, but Russia could somewhat be defeated and China would still, you know, have a chance militarily and everything against the powers that be on a long enough timeline. So some of these, some of these China hawks who were never super bellicose on Russia to begin with are saying, we need to stop diverting all these resources to this silly nonsense in Russia so that we can shore up for a real assault in China, which again, I think both of these are not in the interest of the United States, to say the least. But yeah, we're going to be watching that unfold. But when it comes to World War and other things unfolding, tanks are, more tanks are being sent to Ukraine. I know in many ways I actually agree with Brian Berletic that this isn't going to make a huge difference. The Russians are going to plonk a lot of these very easily and perhaps even be able to take some of them and learn even more about how to counter Western tanks and artillery under, on a long enough timeline where the two powers, you know, these blocks actually clash as opposed to through proxies. So I think this isn't going to secure any kind of territorial gain for Ukraine. They're going to eventually have to retreat from Bakhmut, which is being surrounded. But Dmitry has a few more details on the tank situation, on Abrams, Leopards, and as well as the actual on-the-ground situation.
1: Yeah, so besides all the uh, howitzers, the munitions, the various types of missiles being sent to the Ukraine, which has already been confirmed by the various smaller nation, nations uh, you know, com- com- uh, inside of NATO – the largest, of course, shipments are the 31 Abrams tanks being sent by the U.S. Now, the unfortunate development for the Ukrainians here is that the Abrams were delayed by almost a year, at least, or, you know, six six months, six to 12 months, they're saying that the Abrams need to be prepared uh, to be sent to Ukraine. So the question arises, will Ukraine even uh, continue to fight six months into 2023 at this point? And the prognosis is not looking too good, especially what about, you know, considering what uh, the outlook is for the for the near future starting in spring. Now, so the 31 Abrams are not going to arrive in Ukraine for a little while. Now, what about the German tanks? Now, the 14 Leopards, the Leopard 2 tanks, which are very, very modern German tank, very, quite a good one, actually being sent to the Ukraine will arrive perhaps in the next couple of weeks at this point, or at least six to eight of them will arrive soon, and the rest will arrive a bit later. Now, Germany has announced just a couple days ago, in early February 2023, that they're actually sending 88 Leopard 1, which is an older model of tanks. So we have 14 Leopard 2s and 88 88 Leopard 1s being sent uh, to the Ukraine, which is almost 100 tanks from Germany alone. Now, it, this this raises the number raises the number of total tanks being sent by NATO in 2023 to about 200 in total. Now this is quite a bit, I would say. And yes, it would perhaps cause a difference in the current state of things, where the Russians are aren't using that many resources to surround Bakhmut. You know, they're not using they're, they're ta- the Russians' tank numbers at the moment a- actively in the field are close to maybe 50 or 100. The Russians aren't using their which. Mind you, the Russians have thousands of tanks at the moment, like actually in its military, like prepared to run and probably around 500, which are ready to go at the moment. So, yes, 200 tanks right now would cause a huge difference, but not if the Russians uh, begin to utilize their three hundred thousand mobilized troops in the Ukraine shortly, which these 200, as Conrad said, they're going to be taken out quite soon. Um, you know, quite soon after being deployed, and you know, yeah, they may they may slow the Russians down slightly, but they're not going to. It's a drop in the ocean compared to what the Russian military has to show. Which, frankly, we can say perhaps they've shown it to us in full in February and March 2022. But um, by all accounts, Russia really didn't try hard enough in February and March, and really didn't even attempt to take out any key strategic objectives in those early months of the war. So. At this point, uh, the special military operation is very much still leaning in Russia's favor, despite all of these, uh, aid packages being sent to the Ukraine. Um, naturally speaking, of course, uh, 1488 being a very provocative number. I'm not sure why Germany exactly selected this particular number of tanks being sent. Maybe it's an inside joke of some sort. Uh, maybe it referenced the neo-Nazi movement in the Ukraine. But, uh, you know, uh, the humor, <laughs> the humor kind of takes a back seat here, you know, but will it'll definitely be written down in the history books, I believe.
0: I think the the idea of the green government 1488 posting is a little bit funny to me in general. So I think that's uh, that, that I'm kind of glad that will that'll be in the history books for all the meme future meme lords and everything. But when it comes to um, we're going to talk a little bit about persecutions and some of the other things. But when it, when it comes to what's going to happen in the spring, is there do you have any information or any kind of I don't know about information, but any kind of insight or idea or guess or whatever it is that as to where you think the focus on that might be, whether it could be towards the Kharkov direction, whether it could again be towards Zaporozhye, as we've kind of seen the link, the, the beginnings of slow movement, or is it going to be from Belarus? So it's like, what is there any kind of indication, whether it's the troop placements or anything that, and we see the Western media hyping some things up again, as they were at the beginning of the special military operation, which is about to reach its you know year anniversary. What what do you see on the horizon here?
1: Yeah, so. Essentially, on the Kherson end, we'll start from the south. So around Crimea, Kherson, uh, we don't have much information regarding its defense. We we do see Ukrainians are actually conscripting and recruiting Russian as well as Ukrainian citizens of Kherson to man the trenches around that southern area. But besides that, we're not quite sure how robust the ukrainian defenses are in the south now moving up northwards towards zaporozhia uh the russians of course still use zaporozhia as the main target after bakhmut now zaporozhia the largest city hasn't russians haven't pushed much forward into it since the last you know two episodes we've spoken about it so those first pushes that the russians have been doing from you know which have ranged somewhere between 7 and 14 kilometers deep into ukrainian defensive lines they've not been uh They've not been sort of worked and progressed on, not too much. So it does seem like the Russians were simply testing the front line of defense of Zaporozhye. Now, the main target the Russians, of course, have been aiming at was the city of Bakhmut, which is almost surrounded. Russian media sources are reporting that the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut is almost completely surrounded. Now, the Ukrainians still have several brigades and tanks stationed in Bakhmut, which Uh, If surrounded, will of course, be left with no other choice than inevitably to surrender. Now, you may say, well, why would they surrender? They should fight to the death. Well, there's no... It's similar to Mariupol. There's really, in in, in modern military senses, there's no way of fighting out of that surrounding. Um, You know, you're getting bombarded by all sides, you know, from all sides by artillery. The Russians can, of course, send in infiltrator squads as mortars from all angles hitting you. There's no way you can actually succeed in not just breaking out, but again, succeeding and actually winning in that battle. So it would be honorable and, of course, respectable for the Ukrainians in Bakhmut to surrender to the Russian army. Um, and, of course, Wagner, who was leading the uh, surrounding, of course. So this is the result of, of course, Solodar falling to the Russians uh, two to three weeks ago. And these are the fruits. Now, we're seeing Bakhmut actually fall to the Russians. A huge moral boost to the Russian force, And uh, next, I guess the goal would be Zaporozhye, which is right next door, and we've been speaking about that. But again, we'll need to see what exactly transpires in the coming weeks in February. Now, in the north, of course, there's talk from the Ukrainian media, as well as the BBC and United Kingdom media, that, hey, the city of Kharkov may be under siege again soon, that the Russians are amassing 500,000 troops on its borders to attack Ukraine. So Kharkov is the second largest city in Ukraine. The chance of it falling to Russia, of course, is bleak. Now, Um, You know, obviously Kharkov is a gigantic city. It has almost a million people, uh, I believe more than a million. And Russians taking Kharkov would be probably the greatest feat of this special military operation thus far, much larger than Kherson or Zaporozhye or even Bakhmut at this point. So, uh, and notice the Russians didn't manage to take Kharkov in February, March, 2022. So again, the Ukrainians claiming that Russians are about to strike on Kharkov a second time in the north of Ukraine is uh, is is a pretty big claim. Now uh, we'll just have to see if that transpires or not. So, of course, the media at the moment in the in these uh, you know at the, in the first week of February is claiming that Russia is about to begin assaulting or at least is preparing for a full on round two assault of Ukraine. Whether or not we see that take place, uh, me and Conrad, of course, have predicted that the end of February, early March, will be you know around that springtime. When uh, you know the the snow will begin to fall, and you know kind of things warm up slightly that that's when the Russians will actually push towards taking more territory from the ukrainian from the Ukrainian military, but um you know the media is saying that this may be taking place a lot sooner. I guess we'll just have to see uh, but yeah, Russians are in a pretty good position at the moment, you know the taking of Bakhmut, which should fall within maybe a week or two will of course boost the morale of the Russian side quite significantly at the moment.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with what you just said there. And another front, before we get into some of these crazy schismatic funeral behavior that Dimitri has prepared for us to talk about, the other thing that we haven't talked about this in a while, in a few episodes, to say the least, is that Moldova has been back in the news. And it seems that many Moldovans are expressing their disdain for possible you know, NATO intervention and certain NATO groups talking about, we need to form a task force to help Moldova. And the president of Moldova is really going all in on being a pro-westerner and all this kind of stuff but a recent poll was released that uh, conducted in moldova that revealed that 56 percent of moldovans will not take up arms to defend moldova in case of russian attack or a transnistrian attack and remember transnistria is that little sliver on the border with ukraine from uh in, in moldova that's entirely controlled by russians and russian-backed separatists and i believe there's a russian military base there and if things are to ever really go hot with other countries, that's something that Russia is going to be able to mobilize and ultimately have the ability to do a pincer maneuver between their Crimean land bridge and their bases in Transnistria. They would be able to, uh, on a very broad frame, though they'd be able to kind of outflank the forces within Ukraine. That's, that's always somewhat of a possibility. They've. Very much shown that they are not taking the gloves off that far, but Moldova as a country does not seem to, it's again, it's as a, the Moldovan church is underneath the Moscow patriarchate, the bishops there, are some of the, actually the most anti-globalist bishops in the Orthodox world, just look up what they said about the vaccine, 5G, other things. It's a, I find it very enlightening and very base to say the least, but yeah, no, Moldova is interesting. Do you have any, any thoughts on that, on that wacky little nation, Dimitri?
1: Yeah, I think the question of Moldova of course Transnistria all obviously ties into the larger um dialectic and this is of course I think justified dialectic tension between Romanian the Romanian nation and the Russian nation which uh, you know Moldova and Transnistria are right there on the border and there's that huge debate which is you know one of the main contentious points between Romanians and Russians is who controls Moldova so Moldova technically um is home to many people of Romanian heritage and the church is run by a Russian administration and a Russian bishop's control. So there is that, you know, a kind of contentious point as to who runs Moldovan church affairs. Now, um, this really hasn't been resolved. And if you see any arguments between Russians and Romanians, which, you know, they're both Orthodox peoples, it'll be mainly over that particular area. You know, Mold- Romanians claiming that the Russians are uh, either, you know, continuous of the communist sort of. Status quo, or Russian imperialists, and the Russians will claim that Romanians are simply delusional and unaware of history because Russia did did assist um, the Romanian and Bessarabian people and all the people of those particular countries all the way in the south into Bulgaria in the eighteen hundreds and even seventeen hundreds, freeing them from the Turkish Ottoman yoke. So the, Tur- the Turkish Ottoman Empire actually rolled all around the Black Sea, around the left left side, all, basically all the way up to the borders of Ukraine at that time. So. All these areas were freed by the Russian Empire at one point um in the past. So the fact that Romanians today are, you know, blaming Russians for controlling or having any say in that in the affairs of those particular territories is a little bit um not ungrateful, dare I say. I mean this is my bias as a Russian, I suppose, but we did free my ancestors did free those areas from Ottoman Turkish rule in the past, right? And so the the Turkish yoke was resolves and the romanian nation i think is quite young in terms of being an orthodox um being an orthodox nation in itself i think romania is quite young and so romanians are very uh sort of fiery and feisty in making certain accusations against Russians. so i I do think the moldovan question it feeds into the fact that hey what are romanian russian relations and they have not always been good so don't always assume that hey orthodox people are fighting no this is something that this is something that has roots of about 150 years, uh, and is related again to World War II. Romania, of course, siding with the Nazi Germany, and World War One, Romania siding both with Russia and then against Russia. So uh, it's very, it's very uh, convoluted and. It definitely is more complicated than simply black and white here. And it depends which perspective you take. Of course, I won't blame Romanians, you know, listening to this podcast, you know, taking the Romanian perspective because, yes, there is a lot of nuance here. So, yeah, I do think the Moldovan question feeds into that larger uh, Russian-Romanian discourse.
0: When it comes to Turkey and the Black Sea, Jay was talking about how strategically important the Ukraine and the area around the Black Sea has just been viewed by every relevant empire that's come and gone in that region. So... Moldova being periphery to that and it being really just part of that Black Sea region is always going to be relevant as many of the things that we've talked about and predicted come to pass in that region On the, uh, that we've talked about on the show, whether from a prophetic perspective or just as we see right now with military bases and the expansion of just the current hot conflict in Ukraine. But within Ukraine, there's just a lot of uh, the sectarianism and the evil and the kind of what you could call punishable by God behavior is kind of reaching new levels. Dimitri uh, has, has what is it, the funeral that was going on? I can't remember what city it was in. You could enlighten me a bit.
1: So essentially, a funeral took place in, in Kiev of a former neo-Nazi sniper lieutenant named Igor Linzuk. He had the call sign or nickname of Huntsman, right? Like a Huntsman spider, I suppose, or somebody like a hunter of orthodox Christian Russians, which he was famously very good at shooting because he was a pretty good sniper. Apparently it's reported now this, uh, this, uh, neo-Nazi sniper and why I'm calling him a neo-Nazi is because he was literally a member of the neo-Nazi Azov battalion. He was given a funeral. Of course he was slain in the line of combat and given a funeral in despite not being an orthodox Christian himself, I believe, or perhaps he was baptized, but uh, he was mostly probably a pagan. Being a member of the pagan neo Nazi azov battalion, he was given a funeral in a schismatic church, and of course, what was on the coffin a lid in the church it was a huge wolf's angel it 's equivalent i suppose to putting a huge swastika on the coffin right and just having it in the church so of course his the, uh, his azov battalion comrades were also in the church, standing over his flags with various wolf's angels, some blue, some yellow, some black. Um, all kinds of, uh, neo pagan imagery, um, of course, yeah, and of course, funerals are, you know, regardless of who passes away, they're a very, um, notable, uh, event and, of course, respectable occasion. But a funeral taking place in an Orthodox church is f- specifically for Orthodox people and for people who've lived Orthodox lives. There are even restrictions in the past, there's been, there have been restrictions placed on certain people not being able to, you know, receive an Orthodox funeral upon passing. For example, actors and you know people acting in theaters, and you know this is going back to old rules in the Orthodox Church. So actors were looked down upon as people of uh, sort of you know kind of a perverted lifestyle, and prostitutes as well were never given Orthodox funerals. And in many ways, I believe giving this pagan as of neo-Nazi a or funeral with having a huge wolf's angel neo-Nazi symbol in his coffin is. Uh, essentially a huge act of sacrilege in the church and there are you know and fr- like fortunately right fortunately the church took place in was a schismatic church led by this schismatic uh fake bishop epiphany metropolitan of kiev and you know the fact that it took place in a, in a schismatic church of course underlines the fact that hey you know look we're actually willing to endorse and cause a synthesis between this fake church, which we spoke about with Jay, and this neo-Nazi Azov battalion regime. So in many ways, it's like a relationship between Epiphany and Kolomoisky are united here. It's a, it's a great synthesis of evil that's happening here in Ukraine. This is just one example of it. So a neo-Nazi funeral in an Orthodox church. Well, I mean, how bad can it get, right? Well, no, and
0: ultimately, you just almost want to just cut it down the middle, give the Uniates Lviv in the very western portion and let them join Poland and then just allow the Russians to take the rest and restore order with the canonical church because this is just, this is just nonsense. And it, again, it's the epicenter again. This literal neo Nazi funeral is also the epicenter of contention within global orthodoxy that as we talked about with Jay's ultimate roots is mega ecumenism, liberalism, and just the total destruction of possible union with, with Papas, the papacy in Rome in the future with Patriarch Bartholomew, all of these things. Hence, ultimately, I think are going to find a lot of the roots in Ukraine with the largest uniate group of you know, Greek Byzantine Catholics, as they're called in Ukraine, being, styling themselves as Orthodox, as well as, of course, that brings in the Vatican presence, as well as, of course, the schismatics and the expansion of territory from the State Department-controlled ecumenical patriarchs. So this all, it all comes down to this I think, is true perversion of orthodoxy that is a very central tenet to this conflict that, of course, no one in the West talks nor cares about. So I think in many ways people need to need to remember that. And it's really only uh – I've said it before and it sounds like dramatic or it sounds like propaganda or whatever, but the only solution I see to some of this is just more and more territory and more and more of these parishes falling under the control of the Russian Federation, especially in the territory that's already officially Russian.
1: Yeah, it seems that throughout the conflict, Russians have been the ones who have actually respected the religious rights of all these various religions and also haven't encroached upon religious freedoms of any sort. But of course, primarily we're concerned for the Orthodox Church and the freedom and protection of the Orthodox Church has not been provided for by Zelensky. On the opposite side, he's actually openly announced persecution against it. So, And many Orthodox bishops have cursed him, have anathematized him and also disconnected anyone who's participating in these persecutions from the church and from God Himself, so it's already been done. Anathemas have been read out, and curses have been given. These are, these are ultimatums, which a person needs to repent of the sins in order to return back into communion with God. So these are really important, I think, things which have, which have taken place, and um, I think it's kind of reflective of just the fact that uh, look, Russians are actually waking up to to what's happening in the world and their uh, their place in world history i think russians have woken up from their you know 30 year maybe 100 year slumber and actually of realizing that hey we actually do need to protect orthodoxy because nobody else will in eastern europe now uh, i guess on that note there is a really there was a really i guess really controversial post or even series of posts by a huge account on twitter run by run by Orthodox Russians. It's called Russians with Attitude. Now, Russians with Attitude, of course, runs a podcast as well as a Substack, stack and um, they post a lot of news about the Ukraine-Russian conflict. And recently, they've had a certain um, breaking of the ice, I suppose. Uh, one of their con- contributors wrote an entire thread basically discussing the fact that Russian, r- the way Russia views the Soviet Union was in fact uh, in a negative sense. So the Soviet Union actually didn't contribute much towards Russia, or at least not as much as some communist claim. And, you know, they wrote, they had this big, essentially spilling out of the, of, of truth uh, onto, onto Twitter. And one of the things they mentioned, of course, was the fact that, hey, Yeltsin actually, you know, caused the, caused the destruction of the lives of many Russian people, which of course is true. Me and Conrad both agree with that. They've also claimed that, look, the Soviet Union was a very exploitative, exploitative and Uh, Leaching system for the various minorities inside the USSR, which leached on the larger Russian Russian nation, of course, and this would this is shown um, as well in statistics and archives from the Soviet Union, which showed exports and imports to various smaller nations or smaller nation states within the Soviet Union, such as Georgia, such as Estonia, Lithuania, and even Ukraine. So smaller nations in the USSR actually. Gained more from being members of the USSR rather than our Ar- the Sur, which which was Russia. So the Russians actually suffered more under the Soviet Union than the smaller nations which were members of it. So he, he they actually went on to, this, to speak about that and you know quite in depth. And this triggered a lot of people online. Now I thought the, the coolest part of their post was the mentioning that hey look, Saint Nicholas II, the last Orthodox Russian emperor, was an outstanding statesman. He led Russia to triumph, and he was slandered. Uh, he did not sign any abdication, and that is all propaganda. He and his family died the depths of martyrs, and the truth was always on his side. Now, I mean, this is a very controversial post, because on one hand, he's, he's, of course, claiming that Nicholas II was a great statesman, which, of course, me and Conrad agree, because we've read the actual history books, as well as the primary text. This is not really a contention among serious historians. Now, two he claims that the abdication document in in uh, late February, March of 1917 was not signed by Nicholas II. And this is probably one of the most, uh I would say, contentious and questionable uh, positions that Russian's attitude has held for a long time now. <laughs> because what this means is that the Russian emperor never abdicated. He was forced into house detention and then subsequently murdered and still withheld power within his authority. He never tapped out. He never became like, you know, like Vucic, a cuck of Kosovo, which, you know, he wasn't a Pontius Pilate who washed his hands and said, no, no. Okay. The Jews of the Jews of Jerusalem can have Christ. I'm washing my hands. I'm not in charge anymore. The Russian emperor didn't do that. If, he didn't sign, uh, you know, this apparent abdication document. So the claim, of course, is now being investigated by historians only in the last 20 years this has begun. And Russians of Attitude is aware of these investigations and sides with the opinion, of course, of me, as well as Pyotr Multatuli and other great historians in Russia at the moment who agree that, hey, no abdication document was signed. This has huge implications on Russian history, which has always slandered St. Nicholas, calling him a weak ruler, Um, at least the communists and liberals have even some orthodox people they've said hey look this guy actually signed the abdication document he's a you know he's a weak he's a weak ruler like he wasn't ready to stand and die for his country for his role as the tsar and orthodox emperor orthodox emperors don't abdicate normally like you know why would he abdicate and give power to the freemasons and communists like that's that seems like a betrayal of his duty that's like asking a bishop for a bishop to you know about go, going to retirement forcibly, you know, frocking himself. Like this is something which is uh, incredibly controversial, but it has been taken as the status quo for decades now. And of course, Russians of attitude pushing this Orthodox-based red-pilled opinion and putting it out onto Twitter for everybody to see is a huge step, I think, in waking a lot of people up, including a lot of Russians.
0: Well, I think as well, just look at Tsar Nicholas's life. I mean, he fought tooth and nail to not even sign the 1905 concessions and, you know, the constitutional nature of the monarchy. And he only did it because he realized it would save lives because the people would fight against it if he didn't. But in the context of having already also received what we believe is the prophecy from St. Seraphim of Sarov, between all the other evidence, there's just no, it, it, it really truly it really doesn't make a lot of sense why he would have just abdicated and signed it away with all the, everything that he knew was going on with the war and with, with everything. So it's, uh, I think in many ways people should dive into it. It's a fascinating history of course, but I, uh, I'm glad that Russians with attitude are one of the biggest, if not the biggest kind of Russian English language voice on Twitter and on YouTube in a lot of ways on this stuff is they're on the, they're on the correct side as opposed to, you know, not to hate on Anatoly Carlin or others, but you know, some of those other non, not, not you might not say Orthodox, big O and little O those positions are not necessarily the norm among Russian nationalists, and it seems that the tide of orthodoxy and true pride in orthodox tradition is, is taking root.
1: Yeah, that's right. There's no shame in saying that, look, orthodox saints make mistakes, and Nicholas II probably made mistakes as well, and Russians of attitude would agree there. And even, even of course, Nicholas II would probably agree himself that, yes, he's made mistakes, but to claim that, you know, uh, the whole empire basically tapped out and threw itself away, I think, is against the. Uh, Against going basically against history, and Conrad correctly noted noted that uh, during the Russian Revolution of 1904-1905, um, when in 1906, Nicholas did sign the Russian Constitution, which was a very limited document by all accounts. Like, you can read it. It's actually probably, if the Russian Constitution of the early 1900s was in power now, it'd be the the most based constitution in the world. It had some pretty amazing, uh, you know, articles in it. And actually, um, you know, it's not comparable to any modern constitution, even the American one. It's extremely orthodox, actually, in its its written uh, text. Now, the fact that St. Nicholas II was bullied and forced essentially into signing that document, I think provided the various um, newspapers and media outlets, which, mind you, they're going to mention it, but somebody did control most of the media outlets in Russia at the time, as well as Kiev and all the major cities. Um, this is the stats are already out, and even the saints at the time wrote about exactly who controls or who controlled in 1917, 1905, most of the media outlets, especially the newspapers, which was the main source of news for people. Who controlled all of these companies? Now you can go investigate it for yourself, dear listener. But um, yes, the you know the, that's, that's part of the puzzle, right? Now, of course. Faking the abdication, like this, is the last thing I'll say on this issue. But faking the abdication would would have been a lot easier because you can simply say, "Well, Nicholas II, he remember he signed that document in 1906. Yeah, well, he signed another document in 1917. It's just the continuation. He's just kind of doing his thing. You know, he signed one in 1906. He's he signed one this year as well. Like it's it's a lot more. It, the conspiracy here is that 1917 was only possible because of 1906 and it's kind of, it was probably in the plans actually of the conspirators and of the Freemasons who forced both these documents into into signature. And, you know, the second one, even if it was fake, it was easier to fake because the first one was signed. So you get it. It's a long-term plan for these people, similar to how, you know, their idea was, you know, if they ever wanted to force a war between Russia and Ukraine, they needed to start the Maidan ahead of time. So they planned long-term, these globalists, these enemies of humanity, these Satanists, they plan things ahead of time and they execute them in steps and stages. So nineteen oh six made the application false document of nineteen seventeen possible. And yet, of course, unfortunately, it's up to us Orthodox Christians to have the foresight to actually see these negative events coming, you know. And you know, I'm not preaching for the choir. You guys all know that, you know, foresight is required, but again, it's very difficult to sort of see these things coming. I don't think any Orthodox saints even saw the idea that the russian empire would be overturned in such a conspiratorial fashion i mean the saints said it clairvoyantly but beyond clairvoyance there was really no real prediction of it and essentially no detailed explanation of how it would take place Um, nobody really saw it coming here
0: i think this is a good place to start wrapping up and it shows as we talked about with jay the epistemological question here just how do you discern what's going on in the world you know stick with the saints stick with the elders even in the midst of division within orthodoxy, while most uh, holy people are obviously on the side of the majority of patriarchs and bishops in the church against the schism in Ukraine, even those few saintly people that are perhaps due to jurisdictional issues on the other side have been very much correct on the on the major issues. I mean, take at many African bishops. Metrop- uh Archbishop Makarios, who unfortunately has, I believe, the incorrect opinion on Ukraine, he was able to protect tens of thousands of his Kenyan flock from receiving the vaccination due to what I believe is just his saintly phronema and his having been raised and been brought up by saintly people and possessing that saintly deposit. Just as we say, having listened to the words of Metropolitan Neophytos, St. Paisios, Father Seraphim Rose, St. Gabriel Urgabadzi, St. Florence of Chernigov, these, these beacons and lights throughout the horrors that are the 20th and 21st centuries allow people of simple faith even to see through the psyops, to see through nonsense, to see through BS. And that's for better or for worse, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back. We know we fail every day, but we do our best to kind of bring that to you in podcast form here. So with all that being said, Dimitri, unless you have any last words, we can maybe give the plugs and uh, sign off here.
1: Yes. Yeah, so thank you everybody for listening. And thank you. Big thank you for Jay, you know just coming on here and actually giving his opinion on all these controversial and yet very relevant subjects it's always interesting to hear somebody as learned and as plugged in as jay in order to you know give his opinion on these things and it's it's always welcome of course um we really appreciated it and i think me and conrad are uh, you know pretty uh stoked to actually see what the week has you know has in store for us especially with these balloons going down with apparently you know the media reporting that russia has moved its forces up to the border like there's a lot of things which of course we'll be reporting throughout the week maybe we'll even have a twitter space around you know wednesday or thursday of this coming week so just um yeah just be prepared guys to you know stay in contact you know comment on the Substack, comment on the youtube videos tw- uh, send us dms on twitter you know be involved with us as we explore some of these big media stories coming up.
0: Yeah, no, and with all that, it's worldwarnow.substack.com. On Twitter, it's worldwarnow underscore. Uh, on YouTube, it's just search World War Now. We come right up, subscribe to the channel if you're listening on Substack. If you're listening on YouTube, worldwarnow.substack.com. You know, those are, that's where you got to be. That's where the info comes out, especially on Substack. We have a Telegram, of course. I'm really trying to get to a thousand subs, so hit us over there. Worldwarnow, T E L E. That's what you got to type in. If not, just type in World right Now on the search on Telegram as well. Uh, my Twitter is Rad. Dimitri's Twitter is OCanonist, Uh Follow Jay as well. We'll have all of Jay's links and everything below. Again, thanks to him. Really fantastic and uh, looking forward to seeing him in Austin as we discussed. Yeah, with all that being said, sub so all those links in the description on YouTube or Substack. And again, keep the church in prayer. Keep, uh, keep the world in prayer and everything. And uh, with all that, uh, God bless. We'll see you all next time.